welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Questions from the Ask It Basket. I think some of them are very interesting questions. Um, I'm going to read the question. Uh, ask uh, The first question is directed to Dr. Arnett. And then after that, I'm going to read the question and ask if any of our panelists want to answer. And if they don't respond in five seconds, I will choose one of them to answer. So, and I will refer to them by their, by their medical names. So this will be my first opportunity to refer to Harvey as Dr. Asher. That's going to be exciting. But we're, going to let his, we're going to let his degrees come back to haunt him now. Um, but the first question uh, uh, for Dr. Arnett, uh, and I'm phrasing this some way, you answer the question that you think is being asked, whether I ask it or not. Um, is sex addiction a, um, a medical illness? What would that mean from a medical point of view? In other words, if the medical community, and specifically the AMA, were to... Um, treat sex addiction as a diagnosable illness. What would that mean from a medical point of view? How would that affect treatment? And how, what are some of the implications of that for fellowships like SA? Um, in regard to uh, it, the importance of it being a medical illness, it's incredibly important. And the reason being is, number one, is that uh, when I went to treatment and spent my $53,000 eight and a half years ago for treatment uh, and went $600,000 in debt, uh, I got no insurance that covered my medical illness because my medical illness doesn't exist as far as uh, the dsm 4 was concerned or as far as uh, uh, insurance companies. And uh, they couldn't count it as an obsessive compulsive disorder or any major depressive disorder or general anxiety disorder with panic. They simply couldn't shoehorn it, so as a result of that, uh, I got no coverage and just had to go into tremendous debt to try to pay for, uh, for help. So, so on one end, from a support viewpoint, it's incredibly important that it be recognized as a disease. Number two is, um, you know, it also deals with uh, perception, and I'm talking about public perception. Public perception for alcoholism is the person who lives under the Jefferson Street Bridge and is a black Male who's got a cardboard sign and it has to be ripped along the edges, and then somehow he got a hold of a marks a lot and has to put on there Vietnam veteran will work for food, which, which is, of course, not what's going on here. He needs money for his alcohol. And for some of us, that's our version of what an alcoholic is. And yet, while there is a person who may live under the Jefferson Street Bridge who's a legitimate alcoholic and has that sign, the majority of us don't fit that mold. But that's public's perception. So if you take the drug addict, you're picking the, the prostitute who, who lives out of the motel and she has to shoot up heroin and she has to do what it takes in order to get the money to buy the heroin. And while there are some of us who actually may have done that or been that, the reality is the majority of us are not that. 
So again, public perception is such that that, that, that paints that picture. But 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 the legitimacy of it is 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 that in a sex addiction is that we 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 have our certainly have our issues, but we've been tagged and we've been labeled, and and I think. Um, uh, labeling it as this is a medical disease gives it some level of dignity. And number two is it gives us an opportunity for treatment. Now, if, 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 a, if a relationship, excuse me, if uh, what is the foundation for a healthy relationship? If I had to fill in the blank, the answer is, a, is trust. Because without trust, it's impossible to have a healthy relationship. So if I look at addiction, what is the foundation for addiction? It's my opinion. I haven't heard anywhere. But the answer to me is mental health. Because if I don't have mental health, it is humanly impossible for me to get in recovery, stay in recovery, and uh, get further down the road in recovery. So, so when we get to the medical model, I said all that to say this. Uh, many of the approaches from medical viewpoint involving the disease of addiction, specifically sex addiction, they fit for the same mold as they do for the other addictions. And it's because the characteristics are the same. So a lot of us have general anxiety disorder. A lot of us have general anxiety disorder with panic. So there certainly are medications specifically geared toward that. It's important with me as an addiction specialist that I don't use medications that are also addictive or habit-forming, therefore giving them another addiction to add to what they already had problems with. I'm happy to say there are medications that not only help prevent anxiety and panic attacks, but of course uh, also there are medicines that actually treat the condition when we have a spell of it. Uh, The second one would be major depression. There's no question I went to treatment. I certainly had major depression. And uh, I'm happy to say there are medications, of course, that manage that that are not addicting or habit-forming. And many of them, the SSRIs, SNRIs, and atypical antipsychotics also help uh, with that and help with anxiety. So um, obsessive-compulsive disorder. I'm happy to say that there's no question that obsessions are a major part of alcoholism that's been talked about, as well as narcotic addiction. Well, it's not any different for sex addiction. I'm happy to say there are medications to help with that. There are medications that help with, uh, with the urges and, uh, you know, the use of medications such as Depo-Provera for injections to, uh, to uh, do a sort of medical castration of temporary uh, uh, means. Uh, basically, what we're trying to do is eliminate the urges long enough to help the patient focus on something else besides the need to masturbate. So in that case, uh, seeing a therapist, going to treatment, or going to meetings, uh, they can focus on the recovery as opposed to something a little further below. So uh, anyway, that's just my, my take on it, that uh, I approach this uh, in the same medical way as I do any of the other uh, addictions that I treat. Thank you. Can I yeah. uh, You know, the, uh, it, it, this is all historical, so it's just a matter of time till they start accepting sexual addiction as an illness. Uh, Alcoholism came out in about 35, and it took till 1951 to get a diagnosis for narcotic addiction as a medical diagnosis. So how many years is that? That's uh, 41, 51, you know, 15, 16 years. Um, You get enough people who are governors of states and famous golfers and presidents of countries and yes I am um, and um, and um, 
what's happening now, if you look at the transition, what's happening in the news is saying, oh, I bet they're going to call this a sexual addiction. So the word is already in our vocabulary. You get enough of these prominent people who will eventually get recovery. You know, and uh, the other day, I was, I remember when um, uh, Dick Morris, no, it's, he's a commentator, um, he used to work for, with President Clinton, and they caught him with the prostitutes during the, right during the convention or something. Uh, he was a footman or something. Toe sucker, Nancy said, yes. And it was in all the papers he worked for. He was a big guy running his campaign, President Clinton's campaign. And um, the other day I heard him on a uh, certain channel, and he, he was using words that are recovery words. And I was kind of surprised, but it made sense because he's been doing very well and hasn't been in any trouble. If I had a guess, he's in a recovery program. So it's just, you know, a matter of, of time. And I do want to mention about the Deprevera. Um, there are people who call me from all over the world. I mean, all over I get calls. And they're sponsors. I'm the... The call of the last hope, somehow, I don't know. When, call Harvey, you know, what the heck am I supposed to do? So they tell me all this stuff, you know, they've been here and there and this hasn't worked. And they tell me how they work in their program, they're doing this, they're doing that, going to meetings. You know, they're doing it. They're really doing it. And they say, what do you think? And I say, I think you need to be chemically castrated for a while. Because they have tried everything and we and (laughs) there is dead silence. And then you know immediately within the next statement if you're right or wrong about them having worked their program. Because they will then say to me well, who can I talk to about this? They are willing to go to any length. Even if they don't need it at that moment or end up not needing it, they've shown they're willing. Now, what does a hormone, what does it do for some people? Because we work with one couple in particular where this happens. And whenever she calls and her husband's in relapse or he calls and he's in relapse, I say, oh, you got off your pill? And he one day told me what the difference was for him. Before, the minute he had the thought, he had to do the behavior. On the hormone, he gets the thought, same thought, but he gets an instant in time. An instant where he could use a tool in the program. And he does all right, you know, usually. So, there are different strokes for different folks. Okay. All right. This is uh, perhaps a rhetorical question, but I think it's important. How do you respond to the critic who says that calling our problem an illness is just an excuse? 
The what? Just an excuse. The what or the problem? The problem being um, <coughs> our compulsivity, our sexual acting out. I see. Okay. Anybody? Jeff? A lot of that comes from the sex offender community, treatment community. And uh, it's a a legitimate question. Uh, How do I respond? Call it an excuse. They may be right. I don't don't know. I think it's a misunderstanding of powerlessness, for sure. Wrestled with this many times and been in court with a whole bunch of people for years wrestling with this kind of question. But uh, powerlessness does not mean helplessness. And powerlessness does not mean I'm not responsible. And it's what a lot of people wrestle with is, can a person be powerless and still be responsible? And still be held accountable, and of course the answer is yes. But that's a that's a big challenge for a lot of people uh, uh, in the sex offender community, particularly. Is it is it okay to admit powerlessness when the safety of society is at stake? And uh, there's a lot of a lot of really really sincere, intelligent people struggling with that question. Le- good legal minds and all kinds of well-trained people. While, while I'm up here, uh, I want to say one more thing about this in terms of uh, the challenges of this field. I, I had the opportunity to serve for five years on the board of directors for the National Council of Sex Addiction. And at the end of this month, I'll be with some of the, to me, some of the greatest thinkers and researchers. Basil Vanderbilt uh, from Harvard and Mark Schwartz from Johns Hopkins and now St. Louis and a few others will gather in St. Louis in a real small gathering, intimate gathering, spend the weekend together. And I've had the opportunity to do this for years with some of these people. And uh, we need your help. If you are serious about recovery from sex addiction and co-sex addiction and understanding long-term lifestyle recovery from this illness, I want to encourage you to, to focus on it and learn Learn what it takes. I assure you, it's a huge field and we know very, very, very little. It's a huge problem, as you know, in our culture. But I, I know in recovery, uh, the, to me, the answer is love. That, that's what's brought me to sanity, is learning to love myself, learning how to love you and you to love me, and learning how to let my higher power love me and me to love my higher power. And God has restored me to sanity. Uh, and and it's okay to I love laughing in recovery circles it's a fun time for me to be in recovery these years these days there are lots of people suffering as you know all over the world and I know in my first 10 years or so it wasn't fun and it wasn't funny and there are a lot of really serious researchers around the country focusing on understanding this illness and trying to create some kind of sequence replicable so people can be helped and, and I just want to invite you into the, into the work if, if you have any interest at all. Thank you. I just, I'm, uh, uh, 
if you want to get a, some kind of graduate degree and focus on how to understand this illness and how to help people recover, I really encourage you in that. You're, you're greatly needed. And these kinds of questions are huge in our culture. Thank you. Thank you. You want to? Yeah. Uh, I don't need the microphone. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> By the way, Jeff, it's a great invitation, but be sure you're sober. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh, uh, responsibility powerlessness uh, I think we again can use alcoholism and um, you know if you kill someone you kill someone it's manslaughter you know, whether you know you're an alcoholic or you're not and um, when you go in relapse and you or in a blackout, you know, you're responsible for the consequences. And someone recently mentioned that powerlessness, uh, acknowledging you have a disease, saying I have a disease, gives you more responsibility. Because once you acknowledge you have a disease, then it's your responsibility to take your medication every day. And if you don't, then you have the consequences of not taking your medication every day. So uh, for me, it's kind of a, a simplistic thing. Um, in SA in Nashville, uh, we have had situations where uh, we have had to tell people, either turn yourself in or we'll have to report you. You know, when we say turn yourself in, meaning get to a hospital. That's how we usually say it. You need to get to an emergency room tonight and tell the doctor on call what you've just done and let them help you and treat you. And the consequence might also be, you know, end up in jail, but they also have a consequence of getting well <laughs> from it too. So, it just want you to add. When I used to, when I had to go before the board in those 16 years, I was running the impaired physician program for Kentucky, and there, we had a lot of credibility with the board of licensure. So we advocated for, uh, we usually advocated for about 200 doctors at a time, and we covered about 1,500 plus in those years I was there. Uh, and there would be different people on the board. Most of that board was uh, doctor friendly. They understood their their challenge and their charge in that they were to protect the public. But they would listen to us when we talked about uh, the treatment. And some of them who really weren't that well-versed would say, why, maybe this is just an excuse to say they have a disease. And how do you know it's not just an excuse on their part? And I said, well, we've done our evaluations. We've made the best guesstimate that we can make. Now let's see what they do with it. And uh, there might be a period of time, what I call the credibility gap, when they had to show that they were willing to do their part. And the whole essence of the thing is, I'm not responsible for my disease. As Wilson said, uh, when we, uh, the self-imposed crisis that we can either postpone or evade, he was really talking about that as I talked about this morning. So I'm not really responsible for my disease, except that I drank in a society where drinking's okay. I'm 100% responsible for my recovery. You know that. I know that. I told people that for 21 years before I ever meant it. 
<laughs> now, I thought I meant it before, but I know the difference from the time I said it and meant it from the times that I said it and thought I meant it. Now, I don't know how to divide I just know that's what happened to me. The proof of the pudding is what did I do with it? And I really appreciate what Jeff had to say because I won't go into courts of law anymore. Uh, because, first of all, my brother's an attorney, and I don't know if that gives me the right to say some of the things I'm going to say because I don't have any problem with attorneys, except that I do know that in a court of law, only one side is interested in the truth, and that side can go to the other side on another case of similar type because that's what they're trained to do. Uh, and I walked out. I said, I won't do that. I did one case, and I walked out because I thought I was going in there to talk about the facts. I spent the first 45 minutes defending me. And I said, I'm not going back there again. I'm just not going to go in there. But I, when Jeff started talking, I understood the complexity of the charge of the judge and the charge of the attorneys to decide what they're going to do about somebody that I know in some instances are right there absolutely not believing a damn word about what they're saying. And they are using it as, they are using it as an excuse. There's no question. And how do you decide who's who? And working with the prisoners that I'm working with right now, four and a half days a week, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I'm working with three to four hundred in a week in SAP programs. And what I'm intrigued by are the number of people. And I think I can tell a con from all the way across the floor. I've lived it. I think I can tell it. I found in the prison it's fascinating because, number one, I can't tell it because they don't know who they are. The ones that do know they're conning, I can tell. The ones that don't think they're conning, but they are. And the reason I know that is everyone I'm supposed to call me when they walk out of there because I have people lined up throughout the entire state of Kentucky that can take them and meet them when they get home and take them to an AA meeting. I've got it lined up for them. Every one of them says, I'm going to call you as soon as I get home. Right now, 40% of them are calling me. And their studies say that 50% of them will be back in the first year. And now I'm beginning to believe it. And they don't know they're conning. The last thing I want to say is about this insurance deal. I think it needs to be a disease because of the credibility, no question about it. But you know where our, our insurance deal is with our substance abuse. The individual insurance companies carve out a special section. And the treatment today for alcoholism and drug addiction is at best inadequate. At worst, tragic. And it's still given a disease, and even the insurance companies call it that and pay nothing to get it done in most instances because they've carved it out. So that I think it's pretty naive to think it's going to make any difference in our insurance coverage, at least with the current place we are. But to still storm the wall, continue to get what we should get basically on the things we're talking about, that SA, continuing to talk to our people, and I do believe in, in insurance, and I do believe the pendulum will swing. I've watched it swing both ways. And we were partly at fault in the 80s. There were a lot of people who got really rich running treatment centers. And they lost a hell of a lot of credibility during that time because they pretty much raked the whole industry. And since that time, the insurance companies have used that as a valid excuse. They know it's not valid. But they use it as a defensible excuse in that, no, we're not going to do that. Y'all screwed us. And they'll keep using it until somebody says, uh, no, the screw has now shifted the other way. What used to be the screwer is now the screwy, you know, and that's what it is. So we need to start looking at that. So I just need to add that. Anyway. All right. Um.
we, when we talk about our illness, we talk about how it's incurable and how it's progressive. So the question, there are two questions that are related to those two ideas. The first is, if the brain truly has neuroplasticity, then why can't uh, we say that the disease of sexaholism or sex addiction is curable? Why can't we say that? And the second, perhaps related question, is does the illness of sexaholism progress while a person is sober? If so, how and why? Let me talk about this plasticity deal. I'm fascinated by that. Because, as you know, Kobe out at, at Scripps Institute was the big proponent of the plasticity of the brain, which is basically the brain's ability to adapt itself primarily through rewiring, but it will, it will go to where it has to go to deal with whatever it has to deal with. And, that make, and we know that's what happens when we're using or acting out or whatever that may be. And it stands to sense, it stands to, it's, it makes sense that the reverse is also true. That's just not the way it's worked out. Because we've had, we've been make, saying expressions for years that tell us more than that reverse plasticity. And it is once a cucumber gets, to, uh, once a cucumber gets pickled, he ain't ever going to be a cucumber again. And we know with repeated examples through the time-tested ranks of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous <coughs> that that's true. No matter how long you stay sober, and AA has brought anecdotal information to the table that says this progression of the illness uh, continues in spite of the fact of whether I'm drinking or not. And we brought most of that to the scientific area. Years ago, if you'll recall, uh, there was the old THIQ theory that came up. It did not stand the test of time. We know right now that THIQ may or may not exist. But we know it has nothing to do with the compulsivity. But what we think it may have something to do in these aldehyde condensation products is the progression of this illness. And let me tell you, that's way back on the drawing board. That is nowhere close to being published material or maybe even accurate material. But there's still much research being done, and maybe some of the other gentlemen know what's being done more than I do, to try to, try to explain this progressive thing that we have uh, which is different from the seven-and-a-half-year mean average of drinking in the adult alcoholic as opposed to the adolescent alcoholic. But certainly this thing that we talk about, that there's a period of time where the guy with 30 years sobriety in the AA Big Book, which actually came out of Richard Peabody's book, The Common Sense of Drinking, Wilson lifted it out damn near verbatim. Pretty much a lot of that Big Book was lifted out of various places, and Wilson called it the common property of all mankind. And that that was used entirely to present the idea that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And the only successful treatment is abstinence. Every now and then we get a little bit from the Sobels and the other people trying to bring us back into this believing the lie. And all of us want to believe the lie because that's all we ever want to do. At least me, drink like a normal person. You know, and it ain't going to happen. And once we cross that, quote, invisible line, it's over. So this idea of reverse plasticity smells a lot like my trying to find a loophole. You know, if the brain can do this, why can't it do it? I'll tell you why. It just doesn't work that way. And the fact that I can't explain it to you out of the fourth chapter of plasticity of the brain doesn't mean that's more important or more factual than what we've assimilated in 70 years of Alcoholics Anonymous and in the relatively short period of time that AA, our essay, has been telling you the very same thing. Whatever this line is, 
virtually none of you who believe the 12-step system is ever going to believe you can go back to being normal without a spirit in in the in that sexual compulsivity, sexual addiction, sexual dependency, whatever you want to call it. So I feel very strongly about this idea. I've, I've read that in the literature. I've had people come and talk to me about it. I don't have to go to 12-step meetings because my brain's going to correct itself. And I said, well, I just hope I'm at the train wreck when it happens because I want to be sure and rescue your silly-ass brain that's connected to your... Harry ass, I'm going to get you where you got to be because you're crazy as a goat. <laughs> yeah, he was asking if those were scientific findings, and I'll let y'all decide on that. <laughs> um, I, my, my thoughts are real simple. I. Um, I don't know about neuroplasticity. I, I know the phenomenon and the description of it and the evidence for it and against it. But uh, um, I would just say that uh, all I know is that uh, my responses to things have changed dramatically. That when I went to treatment, I was only asked to change everything I thought, everything I said, and everything I did. And that normal people don't have the courage to do so. And I firmly believe that's absolutely true. Um, I'm happy to say with a really hard recovery program and the help of God and the help of the people in this room and, and the meetings that I've attended that those that was allowed to change. And so along with that, by learning what my triggers were, uh, they're, they're not triggers like they were. Uh, an example of that, I don't recommend this for anybody, is uh, I remember three years in recovery, um, I told Steve and a few other of my friends I did something pretty crazy. And um, and that is that I went into an X-rated uh, place and I walked through it and I walked out and I got in the car and I drove home and I had never done that in my entire life didn't know it was humanly possible for somebody to do that. Now uh, my friends have told me that was pretty crazy and all I knew is I had to do it and I prayed before I I went in there and I prayed when I left and again I don't recommend it for anybody but my point is this my reaction was different. And 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 uh, the reason why I didn't call anybody before is because they probably would have talked me out of it. But but I, for some reason I had to know: Am I? Are, are things changed? Am I am I different now? Uh, you know, uh, is my response different? Now I haven't gone back. Okay, and that was uh, three years of my recovery. It's eight and a half years now. Okay, I'm not going back because I just needed to do it once for me. Just it was about me and God. It's, I'm just saying. I put all the cards on the table and just uh, whatever the outcome was was the outcome. But my point is is that, that I don't have the same responses that I used to have. That's what I'm talking about. And so when I hear the comment, I'm not responsible for what I think, I'm responsible for how long I think it, I know that that's true. So I can see an attractive lady and say, wow, she's attractive. But then I can let go of it. I don't have to hold on to it anymore. And so in, in, in the physician's health program I was involved with as a, uh, as a student, uh, is um, all I know is they didn't care what I had done. What they cared was that I became a safe person. And, and so to me, recovery is about simply becoming safe. And I'm happy to say that uh, there are the changes. There has to be, I don't know if it's neuroplasticity. I don't care what the name of it is. I think it's spiritual in reality. And so I don't think there are real good words for it in all honesty. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
want to talk for a moment about the problem in the reco- in the treatment community. There's no consensus. There are treatment programs that teach you how to masturbate. There are programs, sex offender programs, and we have them here, where you're not allowed to mention 12-step programs. It's just taboo. You have, pro, you know, you name it. So not only are we dealing with research, you know, we're talking about treatment and who has their ear to the best grants (laughs) and how are they going to make money from this and uh, what is it? We have the same issues in our 12-step programs. You know, some... Groups feel you could masturbate or you could do other things. We don't, you know. Um, where's an answer, you know? Um, all I know is that I'm allergic to alcohol and drugs. But I've had open heart surgery. <laughs> and they had to give me narcotics for a few days. And I've had many surgeries. Who could figure this stuff out? You know, I use this testosterone stuff every uh, day, and I smelled it, and it was loaded with alcohol. And I panicked and called everyone up. Finally got a hold of the drug company, the research team, about, you know, how much alcohol am I going to absorb? And, you know, they said it, you smell a bit, it's evaporating off. It's somehow to hold the testosterone in for a moment. But um, what is it? So much of this is attitude. What am I willing to do? And by the way, this, this sex offender issues are so difficult to deal with in 12-step programs. And yet, we sure haven't stop sex offenders. Maybe what they're doing is going to work out better. You know, who knows? Uh, I've just had to learn to keep it very simple on what works for, uh, for me and keep an open mind and say, fine, that's for them. And I've treated patients who are in sex offender programs and I've been at a clinic where you couldn't talk about it. And I said, hey, by the way, when you get through with your program, you can always come and talk to me about 12-step programs. But we, I, I'm not at liberty to talk to you about them uh, now. Um, somehow this will all get, get worked out, but we're not in the cold. In the meantime, we do have things to help us because we're all living proof of that. Thank you. Thanks, Harvey. All right, we're running very short on time, uh, so I thought I'd... Just ask the easy question at the end. Um, sexual anorexia, uh, anorexia, is this a form of uh, sex addiction? And how do you explain a process by which one would go from being hyperactive and becoming aroused and acting out to, uh, through recovery, becoming uh, sexually anorexic? So. 
was an easy question. <laughs> we, we, have, we have a lot of experience on that from our sister-brother fellowship for eating disorders. You die from anorexia and you die from, you could die from overeating. You know, uh, anorexia, when I get people who are anorexic, who I sponsor, after a while, I say, you, you know, that's just the other side of the coin. Somehow they're getting endorphins being anorexic. Who knows? It's, it's another part of the disease. And um, I, I'm one of these um, who push after a while that my um, sponsees start dating. Not to have sex. They need to be married for that in our program. But that, that um, you know, we're, we're here to get comfortable and live a semblance of a normal life. And that dating, there's nothing wrong with dating. And um, if you're working your program, and if not, and it is a problem, then you, you, you keep working on it. And um, unless you see you're just totally allergic to women. But chances are that's not what's going to be. You know, at least that's what I've seen. You're allergic to what you're thinking about women. You're not necessarily <coughs> allergic to the woman. So, but, you know, that's about, about it. It is dangerous, I think, for, uh, for us, and especially in SA. We have to be very careful because the concept of, of um, celibacy can confuse people. This program is in SA is not about being monastic ultimately. It's not about being a monk or a nun. It's about being comfortable and seeing what is God's will for you. And if his and to be receptive if his will for you is to bring a woman into your life, well then that's part of your eleventh step. So it's really working the steps to kind of get the feel for this rather than doing it in, in a totally anorexic way. But Let me add one thing to that. You know, it says alcohol is not our problem and drugs and, and bottles are simple. That's in, and this, I, this is feeding into what Harvey has said. Because my problem is not alcohol and drugs. In fact, they were my medicine. They were my medicine to resolve the issues that came from me of being irritable, restless, discontented. And that fit spiritual condition said we can go anywhere if we're in fit spiritual condition. The one admonition I would like to make at being fit spiritual condition, like Harvey said, working the steps and, and on a daily basis doing what we need to do, I would strongly recommend if someone is going into the next level, like if I'm talking to someone going to make a 12-step call going into a bar, and it doesn't happen much anymore, but it happens occasionally, what is your spiritual condition and why are you going there? Same thing is true of going in, in, on into this beginning to participate in life that Wilson talks about. What does my sponsor say? What does my support group say? I'm letting them help me determine what my spiritual condition is rather than my own perception. I'm not saying it's going to be different, but that's just the way my program works. 
I go out there with my ears back and do what I think God wants me to do, but I check in at least four or five nights a week and with my sponsor at least once a week to two times a week with him one-on-one really talking about where am I really, what are you seeing? This is where I think I am. This is how I feel. And just the fact that I feel wonderful at times, that's a good barometer for a man 32 years sober, but it isn't infallible. It is not infallible. Part of the spirituality is I never have to walk through the sharp pool alone. Y'all call it, what do you call it, uh, on the in, in the enemy camp or something like that? Whenever I'm thinking I'm in behind yeah. enemy lines. Yeah. And the saying in AA, which you probably heard, is I, never, I treat my mind like a bad neighborhood. Yeah. I never go in there alone. <laughs> Same deal. <laughs> In the eating disorder communities, they teach people to uh, do gentle eating and to notice their food and to taste their food. And a lot of the treatment of sexual anorexia involves sensuality and becoming aware of the kinesthetic sense of movement and taste and smell and sound and touch and texture. And uh, a, a lot of people in recovery really benefit from learning to expand their definition of sexuality beyond just vagina and penis. And to expand sexuality to include something about spirituality and a sense of soulfulness and sensuality. So the sexual compulsive will frequently swing toward a a sexual anorexic state and then do a binge purge kind of phenomenon as Harvey was talking about with the eating disorder. We know those from the eating disorder community, but... A lot of the recovery from sexual anorexia has to do with expanding the definition of sexuality and putting it in a relational context and bringing love into that and all the components of love, including empathy and understanding another person and learning how to make requests and ask for what one needs and what I call into me see intimacy. A lot of that is... It's about recovering from sexual anorexia as well as sex addiction. Thank you. We finished? Let me say one thing. Uh, I need to say this before we leave. I've had a number of people who have come up and asked me today about, do do you think I should do this? Do you think I should do that? What do you think about these medicines? What do you think about how I should educate my family members? Uh, You're looking at three of the consummate experts in this community. And every answer I've given each of you was to try to find out where is the expert in your community to come to and start to work through these issues. And obviously we're talking about SA, but we'll be talking about any sort of compulsivity or addiction. And these guys, these are the three guys around here who know what's going on. And uh, as, as, as a caveat to what I've said, get their names, figure out how to get in touch with them if I've left you with the idea of trying to find somebody. Oh, one other thing. I have two folders on this addiction conference we're having in Lexington the latter part of January. Some of, some, some of you asked me to bring these, so you can have them if you want. Okay, uh, let's have a round of applause for our panel. We are, we are out of time, and um, um, I want to take a group conscience on the closing. Does anyone want to close with a prayer?
Okay. But is, is this really a, a this really isn't an NSA meeting? Well, so we, we have. Really, we can do it, but it's not an NSA. That's correct. That's correct. And and but we do have. A, we can practice these so principles practice, in our affairs. But I think we need to be very clear that this is not an NSA meeting. Is we're talking things that are not NSA necessarily approved, and so you know whatever. And I don't know, Steve, in the microphone if it picks it up, but I have some fear and trepidation that people might think this is an essay meeting. But let's pray. Yeah, and it should work. We can do it. Um, okay. Okay. Lee's here. He's going to shut shut down the tape. It's all the more reason to pray. <laughs> I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.